Hey, Alabaster Jar listeners. Before we begin this week's episode, I have two very exciting things to share with you that are taking place during the month of May. First of all, Northern Seminary is pleased to announce our next Taste of Northern event. On this day, we offer free classes from our world-class faculty on various theological topics, as well as a vibrant classroom environment, student body, and diversity of discussion. If you are discerning next steps in theological education, our Taste of Northern event will give you an opportunity to see if Northern Seminary is a place you can be trained to live out your purpose and ministry. Go to seminary.edu slash taste to register for our next event taking place via Northern live streaming technology on May 17th. Also, on May 12th, Seminary Now is releasing an exciting new course on women in the New Testament from our very own Dr. Lynn Coick. Seminary Now is a subscription-based streaming video platform that delivers exclusive biblical, theological, and practical ministry training from a diverse group of leading educators and thought leaders. Visit seminarynow.com to learn more and sign up for a seven-day free trial. Now join us as we begin this week's episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast. Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. This week, our host, Dr. Lynn Coick, is joined by Reverend Dr. Jamie Clark Souls. Jamie is Professor of New Testament and Altshuler Distinguished Teaching Professor at Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University. She is also the Director of the Baptist House of Studies at Perkins. Dr. Clark Souls enjoys speaking widely and writing for both academic and popular audiences. As an ordained American Baptist minister, she has served in both parish and hospice settings. She is the New Testament editor of the compelling new CEB Women's Bible and has recently completed a book entitled Women in the Bible for the Interpretation Commentary Series. She is the author of numerous books and essays with books including Reading John for Dear Life, A Spiritual Walk with the Fourth Gospel, Engaging the Word, The New Testament and the Christian Believer, Death and the Afterlife in the New Testament, and Scripture Cannot Be Broken, The Social Function of the Use of Scripture in the Fourth Gospel. Dr. Clark Souls earned her MDiv from Yale Divinity School and her PhD in New Testament from Yale University. Hi, Jamie. Thanks so much for joining us on the Alabaster Jar. It's such a treat for me. Well, it's an honor to be invited. I'm really excited about the conversation and everything your podcast is already doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, you are certainly not a stranger to uh, thinking about and talking about and writing about women in the in the Bible and as a pastor and preacher yourself, you know, engaged with with the church and life of women in the church. So it's just terrific that we're able to chat. We've known each other for a while in a lot of different contexts. So this is just fun to uh, uh, to have a chance to visit. Um, you know, one of your areas of uh, expertise, and and as I said, you've you've. We're going to cover a lot of ground here. I should say to to our listeners, buckle up because uh, this is going to be really exciting. Um, but I wanted to start, actually, even before your writings, uh, when you were an undergraduate, you looked into and did your work in philosophy and Russian studies. Mm-hmm. That just—I'll tell you—you know, you're you're just a it, it well. 
you just study very broadly. What, uh, what about philosophy and Russian studies has shaped, do you think, your, your scholarship that you've done since then? Yeah, great. Uh, yeah, well, thanks for asking the question. So you're right, very broad ranging uh, interests. And so as an undergrad, so I didn't grow up in the church. Um, and I had, but I had some, we can get into that. Uh, I had some important experiences with the church along the way that, of course, uh, shaped me and determined my vocation. But really, uh, I was, I studied philosophy because I was 18 years old, and I was interested in the big questions, right? So what is truth? What is beauty? Um, how do we live together? What does justice looks like, look like? What is worth living for? What is worth dying for? So to me, at my life at that point, that's where I saw people asking those kinds of questions fearlessly. Exactly. Yes. Not an already yeah. with a scripted answer, but truly fearless, fearlessly. And we're going to pursue this question no matter where it leads. Uh, and so that, of course, then turns into what you and I both do for living with the biblical text, because as I came to learn, those are the very questions that our siblings in the faith from the very beginning have been asking. Um, well, yeah, and, and I'm so glad you said fearless, because that is a great label, I think, to put on your writing. You really do ask the hard questions, which is a level of trust, I think, that you have with scripture, right? It's like, okay, mm -hmm. let's ask it. You know, our God is a big God. Let's ask these, these tough questions. Um, you have studied the Gospel of John extensively. You've written uh, articles, you've written books on it. One in particular uh, that I'd love for us to talk a little bit about is reading John for dear life. A Spiritual Walk with the Fourth Gospel. I love that title. That is so good. Reading John for Dear Life. Um, what, do, what do we need to know to read John's gospel well? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, and I should say, even going into that, the Russian studies piece still factors in. I'll tell you why. Because, um, first of all, I learned Russian first, which then was an easy move into Greek. Because... The Russian alphabet comes from the Greek alphabet, um, and and the Russian authors also ask those really big questions, and they care about um, the human condition. And so, in a way, I partially came to John through Dostoevsky because Dostoevsky, his favorite gospel was the Gospel of John, and um, and so I was read footnotes in my annotated Dostoevsky, and so they they kind of share, you know all of my passions could come together in John because the philosophy and Russian studies, if you want to pick one book of the new Testament that all these things cohere. So, so um, in terms of the gospel of John and what we need to know, I mean, first of all, you need to know that that reading that gospel requires, or you're at least better served if you will just slow down and pay attention because words matter. And of course, the prologue starts out that way. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So just the care and the meaning of words. And so I think people who love philosophy, who love ideas, who love metaphor, who love the richness of language and understand that truth can be conveyed by choosing this word and not that word. Um, so I think, I think knowing that, knowing that words have can have multiple meanings 
and that instead of that being confusing or frustrating, it can be life-giving and liberating. I think so you and I know. So being born from above or born again, which is it? Well, it's, it's both. And, um, and then I think the other thing you have to know is women figure so prominently and in such interesting roles in the gospel of John. I I don't want to pit them against each other and say more so than the other gospels. That's not exactly true, but certainly in what I would consider a unique way. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, um, so often we're, we're just not primed to catch the the beauty of John's gospel. You know, the, the narratives where the characters um, just invite us to inhabit their space and think deeply. You know, you mentioned truth. And um, uh, one, one of the scenes that I love, the irony that's there in John as well, when Jesus is talking with Pilate and Pilate asks him, what is truth? And I think, no, 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 no. Truth. Truth is standing in front of you. It's who is truth, right? Oh, yeah, you know, nice. and yeah. you know, there's just all these, to your point, you know, there's just all this um, rich flavor uh, that John, so you're right. You have to slow down to catch that. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, but it's, it's exciting. Well, you're right. They, and there's also uh, women do factor prominently. Um, I thought maybe we could focus in our time right now on Mary Magdalene. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause one of my favorite scenes in all of the gospels is that picture of Mary hearing Jesus call her name in the resurrection scene. Yeah. And, and suddenly she knows him. Um, and, and it, it just, uh, it, it feels to me like the, the veil that separates us from eternity is pulled back just a little bit. You know, I think of Paul's statement, now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. And it feels like there's that moment, just for a moment, when she senses she is fully known. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's, it's, mm-hmm. a great, it's a great scene. And you talk a lot. Uh, I think that's one of your yeah. favorite characters as well. And it you is. confess, you confess <laughs> in another work that you loved the song in Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> I don't know how to love them. And when I read that, I thought, oh my gosh, we're twins separated at birth. When I was a kid, that was my favorite song. And I would play it, you know, the album, you know. Yes, uh, with the brown cover. Uh-huh. Oh yep. yeah. Oh yeah. In fact, I even remember my grandma, because I was raised nominal Methodist, my grandma taking us to the movie theater. So I, I don't know how old I was, but you know, eight, 10, something like that. I remember the plush red seats. I mean, I remember a lot about going to the movie theater and seeing this movie. This was Jesus for me Mm -hmm. uh, for the next 10 years till I attended church a little bit more and started reading the Bible for myself. Well, that Mary Magdalene though, as wonderful as the song is, that's just not her. It's not. <laughs> it's a it's little not bit about her. Mary. It's yeah. a fictional character. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I, I love what you just said earlier about who is truth, because, of course, John also has the famous expression, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which causes its own. And you and I also do a lot of interfaith work. So we also know the kind of issues that 14.6 raises for interfaith. But for this moment and this conversation, I just think that focus on relationship that you brought it to and connection 
that's already a thread you're picking up on and helping us think about, because when you say who is truth, then you're automatically talking about not just doctrines, nothing wrong with doctrines um, and, and propositions, but you're talking about connection and relationship, right? And that's why Jesus you know, has so many interesting individual, of course, community is important. We have the foot washing, things are done in community, but the gospel also shows these intimate, beautiful, poignant, uh, just, right, just life-giving scenes of Jesus with an individual. And like you said, it, it pulls us into inhabiting, yes, we're part of systems and communities and we need to think about that, but also this really is the Jesus who knows you by name, Aslin. It, it's just moving and humbling and simultaneously exalting. So yeah, so I love the Mary Magdalene uh, character for that as well. And I think so in John, and, and you and I both know the kind of um, sorting out all the Marys. There's just so many Marys that it, people are confused for a reason. If you're confused, you should not be embarrassed by that because it is confusing. <laughs> um, but so Mary Magdalene, we know she's, people picture her, like you said in the song, as a prostitute who anoints Jesus's feet and she's neither a prostitute at any point, nor does she ever anoint Jesus's feet. So it can be very confusing. So that's who she's not, but who is she? So in John, so interesting to me that she doesn't show up in the narrative until the foot of the cross. And I think that's so interesting and surprising. So she's not there in the story. She might be there. We could use our imaginations. She might actually be there, but she's not named until the foot of the cross where Jesus gives birth to the church at the foot of the cross you know, with his mother, Mary there and, and Mary Magdalene. And then she kind of takes over. Uh, she just doesn't show up. And then she dominates in this resurrection scene that you talk about where she shows up. She's the first one there. She shows up and then she um, she goes and it's just her. <laughs> and then she, of course, goes and tells Peter and the beloved disciple. They get their verses where they have their encounter. But they're pretty either. I can't decide if they're underwhelmed. On the one hand, I would say they're underwhelmed because they're like, oh, nothing really to see here. I'm just going to go back home and do what I was doing. Or if they're actually overwhelmed, which is why they just go back home and do what they're they like were doing. Shock. Yeah, I don't know. They're either underwhelmed or overwhelmed, but they leave and she stays. And why that, is it? You know, yeah, yeah. Why is it, do you think, that for so long, I, I, and you talk about this a little bit, we've got Mary Magdalene wrong for so long. You, you hinted a little bit. We just see her as a prostitute. How did that even get into the interpretation of the church? Yeah, so... so you know, in 591, Pope Gregory made this famous statement where he, in a sermon, said, we, meaning he, um, you know, take, he combined the the woman in Luke 7, who, by the way, is also not called a prostitute. That's a whole other story. But the woman in Luke, uh, Luke 7 with Mary of Bethany, who does anoint Jesus's feet, but who is not a prostitute, and Mary Magdalene, he just declared unilaterally in a sermon that he took these to all be the same woman. Boom. It's very rare. I think that there's a moment in time where we can pinpoint why, how did this get into the popular imagination? And then of course it just got picked up for centuries after, including for, I think a lot of readers today, like Dan Brown or Jesus Christ, superstar, people think that's the Bible and they're not reading the Bible. They're experiencing the popular culture. So she's just been done such a disservice. And we've all been done a disservice because it's not only that you're getting something wrong, 
which is already problematic, but you're missing out on what is actually there. And that's, I think, what's so important for people to realize. If we are wrong, and we are, that she's a prostitute, then how do we rehab her in our imagination? Um, you know, and I think that's, if, if we let go of this, she was a sexual or sexual sinner and just think, oh, maybe she was healed of seven demons of eczema. I don't know, but eczema right, right. would have been a big deal then. You know, right. she would have been, she would have had that skin disease that would have prevented her from going into more sacred spaces in the temple area. But that it could have been that. Or um, you, in uh, you talk a little bit of, again in in Luke's gospel um, in another one of your writings, you talk about the woman that was bent over, mm-hmm. right? You know, and how she is a spirit of illness is released. She's released from that. Well, what if we thought that Mary Magdalene also had a skeletal deformity, right? And it was these demons that are making her limp or having her hunch over. I don't know. I mean, there's things that, or what if it's it's shame or a lack of uh, confidence? I mean, I was just teaching my Greek class yesterday and a student made an offhand comic. So I was telling the student, I was like, be bold, you know this. And she just made an offhand comment, honestly, about the lack of confidence. But she, I know for a fact she knows it. And she did know it. But in in the moment, she was a little paralyzed because she is just lack of confidence that a lot of women have. They assume they don't know something before they assume it's arrogance isn't typically the problem. It's the opposite. It's lack of confidence, which is still, you know, something you want to be healed of because she just made an offhand comment about welcome to my life or whatever. That's me in all situations. And it was an offhand comment, but it really struck me. Mm -hmm. And so what if one of the things women can be healed of is the natural assumption you don't know enough and that you aren't enough Yes. fill in the blank, right? So That's I'm right. with you. Because, I mean, yeah, those she, are she debilitating was to do great things. things, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are debilitating things. So to you know, to turn everything into sexual sin or even being sex trafficked, which is another serious thing, but it's not this thing. I mean, so these right. are all important things, and we need to have all those conversations. But we need to talk about what's actually here. And it's like you said, this garden scene, which. I could spend hours on and you could too, because I've written on it at length because every word of that story is so important. And like you said, she connects, she remembers who she is in relationship with someone who knows her and loves her and understands that Jesus, also her grief, we get to witness how hard it is to let go and move to a next stage because you can't imagine anything better than what was just so many things. And then finally, the fact that she is, in fact, the first one to preach the resurrection and to tell the apostles, making her the apostle to the apostles. That's a far cry from just blue eyeshadow. I don't know how to love him. She does know how to love him. And she's the first one to proclaim his resurrection. So she's all the things. <laughs> yes. Yes. Me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I think that in our, uh, as long as we continue to insist that she has a sex- sexually suspect past, which continues in the fabulous series called The Chosen. I don't know if you've seen I don't that. Know or not. that. Um, very popular series. Okay. And um, in this case, um, she's not judged for being a, a prostitute or having a past. And it's more of a, as you mentioned, being a victim. Mm-hmm. There's a sense in which 
Um, we recognize now the social ills that contribute to sex trafficking. Um, you know, a prostitute can't earn a living unless she has clients, right? So right. pointing the um, and the money the doesn't go to her. Let's face it. Okay, the it, money's not. But anyway, it's a whole nother. You know, oh, I know exactly. Yeah. Well, the the chosen um, kept this um, history of of her, but focused more on the alcohol and having an alcoholism and some PTSD from things that in her past. And I felt that they did a wonderful job portraying uh, how difficult it is to live with a mental illness. Mm -hmm. So from that standpoint, I thought all of that is really necessary and helpful. But the thing that bothered me was I thought, when you portray Mary Magdalene that way, you take away the authoritative voice that she has in scripture. She's not the person that you depict, even though you depict a person with mental illness in a very compassionate way, and that's good. Right. But that's not her. And right. by, by you, you erase her, right? Just exactly. Like you erase did. and dismiss her authority. Yeah. Right. And, and so then we don't know what to do when she says he's risen, mm -hmm. right? We, we don't know how to, how to hear that in an authoritative way because we're programmed to think, well, you know, but she's had this past. And I have to say, it, it doesn't matter how long ago that was. If a woman has that kind of sin, it never is fully erased by us so humans. True. Certainly from God, it is totally different uh, with God, but in our culture, nope. And it doesn't work Always. both ways, right? It doesn't work with male characters. Oh, no, not at all. That's something you see even nope. in scripture itself, unfortunately. You know, so here's a case where we have a strong, authoritative woman in the church itself. Doesn't, it's just, this is how it is. And it's there in scripture. Of course, there's other ways scripture perpetuates, you know, so we have our scriptures that give us all of this fantastic material. So I'm sad that there's all the stuff that's there that people don't know or they misconstrue or change when you've got it right in front of you, all this amazing material. And then there's the ways I think we don't talk about stuff that's in scripture itself that can be problematic. And the authors themselves don't seem to catch that they're in complicit in something that, you know, it's where right, we right. come into the conversation and say, these are our texts and they're authoritative. And now what do we do with this? I know you just read, we're working through Judges 19 and, you know, whatever. We have a lot of, I have a whole chapter on that in my latest book, um, Women in the Bible. And there's a whole really difficult chapter on, you know, violence um, and women. So there are those texts too. And let's, um, yeah, I, um, uh, this your women in the Bible in the interpretation series with uh, Westminster John Knox that just came out two years ago, 2020. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, that you do tackle the incredibly important topics, violence and rape. And I think given um, that we just dip our toes into these things in the alabaster jar, I just want to really encourage women um, who, um, uh, have struggles in these areas. And, and I don't know a single woman who doesn't, um, uh, to take a look and spend some time in your, in your uh, book. You're right. Yeah. I was just reading through judges. And I, I think even those last chapters where women are taken, young women are taken as wives. Um, you know, that's, I, I guess what I, 
as we as women and men, you know, look at these passages, are there key things that we should keep in mind as as we read so that we can, uh, as you say, read these authoritative texts, but read them in a way that is uh, redemptive for us today? Like, how do we uh, not do what is right in our own eyes right. as they did during judges time, but, but be uh, a redemptive light now. But first yeah. of all, what, what do we do when you sit down and read that, you know, mm-hmm. when I sit down, what do I need to know? What do I need to be thinking so that I don't just change to another exactly. <laughs> change to Psalms or something? Yeah. You know, well, I think, them. and I, I'm sure and you and I share a lot in common. I'm sure the first thing you do is the same thing I do, which is pray first. Mm-hmm. I just pray and ground myself in the gospel and the fact that I am in a tradition that is gospel. And so however we read, um, if, you know, like I just said yesterday at my last class, you know, if it's not gospel, don't preach it. If it is, believe it. So ask yourself. So first I pray and I pray for insight and I pray for fearlessness. Can I read this intrepidly and read what's actually there, not what I wish were there? So I read it. I want to really understand what it's saying. What is the context in which it's written? You, know, I want to first gain knowledge about what I'm reading, but go ahead and read it, but read it, make sure I'm trying to be rested, whatever, just prepare to read something like this. And I do that in the chapter to kind of say, it's, you know, it's almost trigger warning because these are hard things. I also promise the reader, if you work through this chapter with me, I promise the next chapter is women creating because one of the quotes I'm very committed to uh, in this book, in life, in my own Christian walk, is uh, by Kenneth Roxroth, Kenneth Roxroth, and it goes like this: "Against the ruin of the world, there is only one defense: the creative act." Mm-hmm. Fine, but I also tit- entitle my chapter uh, "Truth and Solidarity with Hope." So I pray for the courage to read these texts and read in an honest way and not sweep things under a rug because they are tied directly to the lived experience of people today to whom we are called to minister in the name of Jesus Christ. So uh, I pray that, and then I read the text, and then I also commit to reading in community because if you're on your own reading these, you're going to be, well, I'm going to be overwhelmed and you can get in a space of moving towards despair or feeling like it's all too much, it's hopeless. And it's absolutely not. It is not hopeless, but the way forward is together. And there's the solidarity piece. We have to be together. That means not only walking with victims and we, many of us are victims, but, you know, addressing systems, et cetera. But we are a gospel people. And it is the case that every single scriptural text can be read towards gospel. It may mean we don't just take it off the page and drop it into 2022 and say, now we just act the same way and go do what you said. We don't just go to foreign countries and in war and treat women that way. Just because it's there in the Bible doesn't mean that's ordained by God today, that soldiers go and treat women and whatever. Um, but there are ways of reading hope. And that's what our that's what we've learned over 2,000 years. We get strategies for reading and behaving hopefully and gospelly. And so it can be done, uh, but it has to be done together. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the call that there's a call to action, an implicit call to action. Um, because when, when these injustices, when 
Again, every man does what was right in his own eyes. Mm-hmm. There's a judgment against that. So it, it encourages me to think, well, what am I doing that seems right in my own eyes? Where am I exercising my privilege, um, for example? Um, and where am I not engaging when I could? So, and then right. as you say with community, how is my local church? How is my denomination? Um, or other groups that I'm affiliated with. Um, but yeah, to bathe it all in prayer, that's um, yeah. first and foremost, because we're not going to solve what what are really uh, serious problems of evil in our own strength. Yeah. And I like your your attention to the individual thing, because I think it's really easy, especially in our culture and context and the way we're raised, to just think in such individualistic terms. And so you can think, I'm not doing anything. You know, we, we serve not just because then we like, look at us, we serve. I mean, to be fully Christian and to really, right, to take on the mind of Christ, we serve. That's just part of who we are. That's part of our call. It's not like we're doing some kind of extra good deed. If we truly want to be conformed to the mind of Christ and really be Jesus in the world, it's a gift to ourselves to act in ways that acknowledge we are connected. That is how God has created this world. We're connected to each other and creation itself, not just human, but the, in addition to human, God has made us in connection. And when we don't recognize it and we don't act in that way, we we cause injury and we miss out. It's not just negative. We miss out on abundant blessing because there's so much blessing to be had. I know things seem overwhelming these days, but there's still so much blessing to be had. I mean, I have two grandchildren, so it's actually really easy for me to say that. <laughs> I can I can testify there is blessing to be had yes. in the midst of it. It's not it's not an either or, it's a both and. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as we keep on this theme of uh, women, I also wanted to mention you were the New Testament editor of the Common English Bible's Woman Bible. That came out a couple of years ago, 2016. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mean this in a challenging way, um, but this particular question, I just love to hear your answer. Why do we need a women's Bible? I know, right? So mm-hmm. it's a great question because I laughed when they called to ask me to be on. I was like, did you read my first chapter of my Engaging the Word book? Because in that book, I, I, I kind of take issue, honestly, with all of these different kinds of the, this Bible, the soldier's Bible, there's even one called the minister's Bible, which really cracks me up. Yeah, um, that's pretty but ironic. <laughs> it, you know, I kind of, it concerns me because again, it's a, this kind of hyper individualization of like the Bible. Anyway, I just thought it was ironic that they called me. And I also I was like, what is a women's Bible? And there's gender things. And are you per- perpetuating some notion that there's a way of reading the Bible that's, you know, is it kind of ghettoizing? I don't know if that's the right word, but just kind no, of, but this I, is yeah. women's Bible. And this is like, like, like men's is different instead of this is all of us and we're all connected. So I had all the same questions and, and I was like, I don't think I'm the right person, but it was interesting in, in conversation. Um, I started learning more about I mean, women. First of all, we're asking for this for the same reason that women ask for, and you're doing this kind of podcast. It's not exclusive in any way. And it doesn't mean that it's not for men to read that Bible. But it is the case that women are still minoritized in terms of powers and structures and assumptions that we all make. It's the same thing with disabilities that I know we might talk about. And so it's a way of helping us all, again, slow down, 
and pay attention. Now we're going to read these texts. There's so many ways to read these texts. And now we're going to do an exercise in reading the text from this angle. And what might we see that we might not see otherwise? In addition, so I love it because it's also got 80 voices, some, some clergy, some scholars, some lay people. It's got little character sketches. So Deborah, um, I just love it. It's, the, it's a certain kind of resource. It's, it's the first thing I know in a way that lists, I know there's the, all the women of the Bible and some other resources, but it just lists in the back for the reader, all the named women and all the unnamed women. It has little sections on things that are particularly concerning to women. They did polls and what do women want to talk about? Infertility. Um, but it's not just things that are typically female because also infertility affects men too. Um, but, um, but things like leadership, time management, those are women's subjects. Absolutely. So it, I loved being on the team and and it is such a great offering. So it's not one of these things that tries to be like, a woman of God does X. It is, these are questions women have and are living through and want to have conversations about from a variety of perspectives. And so again, it's a resource that's centered on scripture, but involves community and the notion of if we're going to have these conversations, let's do it together, not to try to convince you of this or that, but to get our collective wisdom from our prayer life, from our Christian walk, from your relationship with Jesus. It, how, what do I have to learn from you? It's such a gift. So it's still scholarly, but it's, it's a rich resource and not what you might expect by the title. Right. Right. No, I, and exactly. It's, it's a way, as you say, to highlight what is often forgotten because the typical commentary or study Bible will have as its referenced norm point male. Exactly, hundred percent European white male, you know, and not and, even intentionally, uh, which is part of the point. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. default. It's not even mm -hmm. somebody trying to do something, which makes it even more either insidious is a is a negative kind of way to think about whatever. But it it's not that anybody's even trying in that point to be like we want to keep women down or something. It is just the default we're all born into, and unless we actively work to be like, oh, maybe there's another way to look at things from somebody else's standpoint, we will default to that, like you said. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I mean, I read the Bible like you for a living, and I learned so much myself because I also don't hang out in the Old Testament as much as the New, and I get rusty and all of that. And so to be honest, I was stunned by Will Gaffney's stuff on Rahab. I, I actually somehow hadn't realized how often she shows up in the New Testament. How many different books of the New Testament? Rahab who is narrated as a prostitute, yes, right? Yes. And she's a heroine of the faith, but she's not in there because she's a prostitute. She's in there and she's in Jesus's genealogy. And he is then part Canaanite, like, and that makes him hybrid in terms of ethnicity. I mean, I just honestly never thought about Rahab's place in Jesus's own lineage and in our, she's lifted up again as one of the heroines of the, of the faith, um, and so it's, it's an amazing resource. Even if you do this for a living, you will learn things when you read with other people. Cause I'm one exactly. person. So these 79 other voices have stuff to tell me I never thought of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you, it, it's not, you were talking about community and reading. I want to make sure we also touch on the fact that you take, uh, 
trips to the Holy Lands where we actually look, you look at some of this stuff and we're going to put it up on um, our page, Serene, who manages all this stuff. Um, but I did want to have you just mention this Holy Lands trip for women. So it'll mm-hmm. be women that will be going uh, January 2023. Tell us just a little bit about that. Yes, I'm really excited about it. So um, so uh, somebody who leads the Michelle Funk, who was the leader of the women's ministries at Church of the Resurrection, uh, wanted to put this trip together because, again, women were asking for this. They were asking, they want to go to the Holy Land, but they want to do it with other women. And so they called me you know, because you and I both lead these trips uh, often, uh, called me to help with the itinerary. And I thought, wow, what a really interesting, different kind of thing. Again, I first had questions about, I don't know, but but I'm really convinced it's going to be amazing. So what it means, for instance, is we're spending the a full day at Magdala, which, you know, normally you pop over or you're rushing from here or there. We're going to hang out at the Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth instead of racing through and really have time to sit with and be with and think about these, um, you know, our, our ancient sisters and what was it really like and what do we, how do we connect with them today? Learn stuff, but also how do we connect and help their witness speak into our lives, right? The way they follow Jesus, Um you know, what does it mean for us today? And how does it, How again, what does it mean to do this together with other women? So Ginger Gaines Sorelli, who's the pastor of Foundry Methodist Church in DC, I'm the scholar, she's the pastor, even though, you know, I think we both would yes, care about both, both things. You're both eight. Right, right. But, <laughs> but anyway, so um, yeah, so it's going to be a Holy Land trip. So we'll see all the regular sites, but Bethany, right? You normally can't squeeze Bethany in because it's, you know, it's not that easy to fit in the itinerary, but Bethany's really big, a big deal if you care about women in the New Testament. So we're going to hang out at Bethany. So I'm really excited and I hope that it's women across a bunch of different traditions. You know, I'm Baptist, um, American Baptist and, uh, and their Church of Resurrection Methodist. So I hope it's just all kinds of women. I hope it's radical diversity and I'm super excited. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, you were talking about, uh, Radical diversity, which is makes a nice segue into something I don't want to um, miss while I still have you, and that is um, disabilities. You oh, have yeah. an essay called "Disability and the Johannine Literature." There's a new book out, "Disability and the Bible: A Commentary." Came out a couple of years ago, 2016. Um, what what drew you to that area of study, and and what have you discovered? Yeah, it's a great question. I spent a lot of time in this area now. So the way it happened is back in 2010, I had a little book come out called Engaging the Word. And at the end of that book, I was just talking about using, you know, just all the different ways. Again, here are all the exciting ways scholars are now looking at the Bible, right? So womanist scholarship, um, and you and I have done interface stuff, just just newer methodologies people not, might not know about that you can just try it out and see it you know, what that does. And one of them I listed was disability studies, which was brand new. I mean, it was just coming on the scene. And I made the statement, uh, you know, a methodology has arrived when there's a commentary devoted to that method, which there wasn't back then. 
And so uh, Jeremy Skipper and some other folks dreamt up this commentary. And so they had read that. They're like, hey, guess what? And so <laughs> I entered that whole world of that conversation. And wow, it has been incredibly important. And so it's a rich topic and we have not much time. So let me say this. So uh, the a few really important things um, that I feel like I've discovered. Um, there's a lot of bad theology inflicted on people with disabilities. Uh, so there's the the linking of uh, suffering and disability with sin, you know, which you actually have that conversation in John chapter nine. Uh, so anyway, the, the assumption that disability is tied to somebody sinning, a person, a parent, uh, there's also bad theology around if someone continues to have a medical impairment, they aren't praying hard enough or faithfully enough or their community isn't. So there's some um, an unhelpful connection uh, between uh, between that. And then the third thing is this notion that when we do engage disability, it's often like, look at that disabled person. They're such an inspiration. God gave you this disability so that you could show the rest of us like how to be courageous and all of that. And um, there's actually a term for that that folks in disability use that may be too, uh, sound too crass for your podcast. I'm not sure. Uh, but <laughs> should I say it or not? Yeah, go ahead. They, they we can always it, bleep it. Yeah, they call it inspiration porn. Uh, so from their perspective, they're like, our bodies aren't really here to be consumed by able-bodied people as examples of courage. And if they could do it, how much, you know, if they can do that as disabled, how much more can we do as a, so it's well-meaning, but it's objectifying. And, and they all also folks with disabilities are like, also don't put us on a pedestal. Sometimes you able-bodied people go the other way. And they're like, Oh my gosh, you're basically sinless because here you are. And they're like, we're not, we're not angelic. We're, we're literally just as sinful, you know, and we're also just as capable of not being ministered to like, that's great. If your church has ministries with people with disabilities, but also they're everybody with disabilities, all of us, everyone on this planet has spiritual gifts that God expects us to use for the flourishing of all creation. And so are we tapping and making it possible for people of different embodiments to live out their spiritual gifts? Is the pulpit in your church wheelchair accessible? Is your choir loft wheelchair accessible? Mine at my church is not. I mean, is your church actually? And the last thing I'll say, like, you know, so my church, we're working, we have a committee now and we're trying to work on it. So if you can get into our church, but you have to go to some kind of muddy area in the back, you know, what would it be like if all people of all embodiments could enter through the front doors of the church to the glory of the sanctuary that the rest of us have? So again, it's just another, as you said, it's not anything malicious. I never knew that I was walking through the world, not paying attention to the fact that there were curbs and that if you're a yeah. wheelchair, we don't have yeah. to have curbs. I just never thought of it because I never had to. So mm -hmm. there's just, it's really important. And then also tapping. I mean, my, my best Greek student right now, um, I shouldn't say that in case my other students feel. <laughs> so, so I have one, one of your best. <laughs> I have one of my best Greek students right now uh, is actually legally blind. And do you know, I don't know if you know this, we could talk about this and I can help resource you. All of our standard grammars, everything you and I use to do exegesis is not available uh, to wow. blind people. So we're working on that now, but you know, he's really, really gifted exegete and he should have access and we're trying to make that to the biblical languages. So you don't think about it because you never had to, but what would it be like if we start 
going through the world, again, listening to all these voices. So we carry that with us all the time in our, in our, in our Christian walk, whose voice isn't being heard, who's not at this table and why not? And how can we actually, again, in the first Corinthians 11, you know, around the Lord's table, who's not here and why? Yeah. That's such a great image, Jamie. That's a wonderful challenge to to um, end on, a wonderful note to end on, that, that beautiful image. I know you're going to be uh, speaking soon, and so I want to get this um, out there to our listeners. You're going to be speaking at um, a Women in Ministry conference held by the um, ABC Church, uh, and it's called Radical Redeemed Ready up in Wisconsin next month, June 15th. Um, so register soon. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, what are you going to be talking about? So I'm going to be talking about women in scripture. Yay, so the okay. same kinds of things we're talking about, you know, as you said, ABC American Baptist churches. Uh, so it's, it will be lay people uh, um, as well as clergy, but yeah, exactly this. So how do our scriptural texts equip us to be involved in the gospel. Uh, so it's going to be such a good time. I can't wait. I'm really excited to hear the other speakers who are there. It's a great lineup and I have a yes, lot to is. learn. It's going to be, the energy is going to be really great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I encourage our listeners to, uh, to do that. And, and if thanks. you do go, please introduce yourself. I would love to meet you if you, especially and tell me you like, you, you know, mentioned the podcast. I'd love to know, Oh, you know, we connected through the podcast. Please yeah, introduce yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Jamie, so much. This is, I, you know, we could just keep going. I could, could. Certainly just keep going and going <laughs> so much fun. We'll have to have you back and talk some more. So thanks so much. Well, thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation with Reverend Dr. Jamie Clark-Souls. You can learn more about her work at jamieclarksouls.com, which we have linked in the episode description. Jamie is also a leader for the Radical Redeemed Ready Conference, hosted by American Baptist Women in Ministry. This is an exciting and unique conference taking place on June 15 through 18 that is designed to celebrate ministering women. You can find out more information and register at RadicalRedeemedReady.com. If you enjoyed today's episode of the Alabaster Jar, please subscribe and share with a friend. We upload new episodes every Tuesday, so join us back next week for another conversation on the Alabaster Jar podcast.